Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Prevention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. Hello, everybody. I don't know how hot it is wherever you live at the moment, but it's really hot here and I just hate hot weather. It's one of my sort of bugbears. I'd much rather have cold weather because you can just get comfortable by putting on more layers. Whereas hot weather, once you have taken all your layers off, that's it. That's as cool as you can get sometimes. And with the dogs in particular, it's pretty difficult. So it's really interesting how some dogs run hotter than others, isn't it? So our GSP Ren is is quite... You know, she doesn't overheat very easily and she tends to feel the cold. So she gets cold very easily in winter. And our Vimarana wash is the opposite. So she doesn't get cold really in winter, even though her coat is the same um, thickness as Ren's is. And she overheats really easily in the summer. Her tongue is out um, panting with a big spoon shape at the end of it after about 10 minutes. And so we have to come home. And then she's got so much energy and is a pain in the bum around the house because she hasn't been able to have enough exercise. So that's kind of where we are at the moment. I'm just really hoping that's going to cool off. Anyway, with that in mind, what I'm going to talk about today is swimming and how to get your young dog or puppy, especially interested in water and swimming, because this is a really great time to be doing that, of course. So because of the hot weather, it's a great way to cool off, to do stuff with water. It's good for the puppy's first introduction to water to take place when the weather is warm. So they kind of learn all oh, this wet stuff is actually really pleasant. I like being in it and not, oh, this is really cold and horrible. So it's a good first impression for a young pup. Um, and we like it as well. Let's face it, we get to be in the water too and we get to cool off as well. Plus, you get to give your puppy or dog some exercise because whilst they can't run very much in hot weather, they can swim because that's going to keep them nice and cool, that water. So let's talk a bit about swimming and how to go about it and my thoughts about it. So the first thing I'm going to say is about life jackets. Now, I know that this is a little bit controversial. I've spoken to a few different people about this, including some hydrotherapists. So I do use life jackets on puppies and young dogs that can't yet swim. I find that it gives me the confidence to know that whatever the dog does and however much they struggle, they're not going to experience sinking in the water because I just don't want them to experience that if I can't get there in time to support them. So I do use life jackets. And also another reason is I can clip my my um, biothane leash onto the back of the life jacket and that also floats in the water so it's not going to get tangled up around the puppy's 
legs under the water and and become a sort of health and safety risk. It's going to float on the water and you can grab it if you need to. So if you don't have a life jacket, then you kind of have to clip your um, leash onto your dog's collar, which that means you're kind of restraining them and pulling them around by the neck and the throat. And I just don't like that, especially when we're introducing them to water for the first time. And we want it to be a really positive experience. So a life jacket to me is like a harness, but it's a safe harness that we can put on the dog and have on the dog in the water. I've spoken to a couple of hydrotherapists and one hydrotherapist said to me that they don't like life jackets because they find that it affects the way that the dog's body is in the water. Like it affects um, how much the dog is vertical versus horizontal in the water. I haven't experienced that and I found them to be really useful. So I continue to use them with young dogs. Of course, once your dog can swim, I wouldn't recommend you continue to use a life, a life jacket. Although having said that, when I am really pushing the distance on marked retrieves in the water, or even blind retrieves, when I really want the dog to swim a considerable distance, and there's part of me which worries whether the dog is, is going to find, going to struggle, going to find this difficult physically. Sometimes it helps me if the first few times that I do these longer distances, the dog's got a life jacket on because I just know that they are not going to feel that sense of panic. So rather than being worried about the dog drowning, I think it's more that I don't want the dog to feel trapped in the water. So that was going to result in a sense of panic. If you can think of, you know, times if you've ever been swimming and you've just swum a bit further than you're comfortable with and you just got to keep treading water and you've got to get back because you can't just click your fingers and be out of the water. And I don't want the dog to experience that sense of being trapped. And that goes for everything. I mean, it goes with reactive dogs. We don't want the dog to feel trapped with faced with something that they're afraid of and we want to give them the option and the choice to move away from things that they're scared about. And with the water, it's a new thing. It's potentially going to be a scary thing. And I just don't want them to feel trapped. And so the life jacket is a way that, for me, helps a dog not feel trapped, at least in my mind. Um, anyway, so I would have a life jacket on the pup and I would also have a a long line, but not a normal length long line, not a 10 meter one. That's a bit too long and might be a bit of a safety risk, but a much shorter um, biothane long line, which is going to float on top of the water. So what I would do with a pup to get the pup swimming is I would, um, it's usually it works best if there's two of you. So if there's one person who's going to go in the water, at least up to their waist, and the other person who's going to stand on the shore. And by the way, at this point, I should say, in case any of you are thinking, wow, this sounds a bit intense. Um, (laughs) there are some puppies which just go right in right away. And if you've got a breed which is more enthusiastic about water than other breeds. Like, for example, many of the retriever breeds are just, you know, just go right in as soon as you throw something in, or maybe a very slight hesitation, and then that's it, they're in. And if you've got a, a pup like that, then that's great. You don't need to do anything that I'm about to talk about. But these methods that I'm about to talk about now are probably good for the slightly less enthusiastic or less natural um, water dog at first. Some of them do become quite enthusiastic water dogs <laughs> after a while, but some, at first they can be a little bit reluctant and need a little bit of extra help. So, yeah, so I'd have two people and have one person go in the water and probably up to like waist height. And the other person is going to be either on the shore or, you know, just in the shallows of the water up to their ankles. And it's going to sort of represent the handler, as it were. So one of you is kind of the assistant, and that's the person in the water. And the other of you is functioning as the handler, um, and they're going to be more on the shore. So we're going to use things to make the puppy want to swim. And obviously the two main things that we have are going to be food and toys so the food thing let's approach that first so you've got to think about what your 
puppy values most in this situation? And what is going to most motivate your puppy to overcome any slight fear or hesitation about committing to um, going in the water? So for some pups, that might be food, really high value food. And for other pups, it might be toys. And you've got to kind of figure out and experiment a little bit. And because it's a new environment, a new situation, I recommend you don't prejudge this. You don't assume that you know your puppy and you know what they're going to favor. Take both of these things to the water the first time. Take the food and tasty food and the toys and experiment and just see what works best because you might be surprised. So um, with the toys, let's talk about those a little bit. So I tend to have special toys, which I would only use for introducing pups to water or for building confidence around water. I tend to just go to the pet shop and make the most of the sort of discount uh, basket in the pet shop <laughs> of like any sort of floating toys which are on sale and just get those so dogs are really attracted to novelty so having new toys and being able to sort of cycle around them constantly i find that that is um really appealing to the majority of of puppies secondly this is one situation where i will have squeaky toys or even toys that honk if you've got like some fake plastic ducks that make honking noises and sometimes the pigs that make oinking noises. These are really popular and really help um, pups get over their slight worry about the water. I don't use squeaky toys in any other situation. We don't have any squeakies in the house. And if I do purchase a toy by accident that's got a squeak in it, I'll often puncture it. I'll try to puncture it with the skewer, which is a skill, let me tell you. But water, because I just need to find something that is going to help them overcome that fear and that hesitation. And we're not going to be using this throughout the dog's life. We're just using this at this one period of a lifetime of a life to help them get over this hump. I don't think it's going to have any lasting um, repercussions because by the way, there is some, I should just explain that there is some theory or thinking that using squeaky toys with gun dogs encourages them to bite down and cause a squeak. Because if they bite down the squeaky toy, that's what makes the squeak come out. And so that's why you get dogs going, you know, rolling these squeaky things around their mouth and going squeak, 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 squeak over and over again. And the thinking and the worry is that this is going to transfer across to retrieve items, dummies or game. And either that the dog is going to end up rolling these around in their mouth and mouthing and chomping and having sort of sloppy mouth manners, or that even worse, they're going to chomp down on game because if, you know, if it's a rabbit or something, it might make the animal squeak. And that's a bit like a big squeaky toy. So the idea is that this is not a good thing to be teaching gun dogs. I think the jury is out on this one. I don't know if there are any associations because I've just avoided them partly because I find them really obnoxious <laughs> around the house to hear squeaking. So for me, it's not so much a gun dog thing. It's just an ob- obnoxious thing. Plus my dogs are really into destroying everything. And I don't think a squeaky is going to last very long here. So anyway, this is one situation with the water where we will, you know, push the boat out as it were, if I can use that analogy in this context, (laughs) Um, and um, have the squeaky toys. So I would have my helper in the water, have the squeaky toys, have the food. And my job as a handler is to sort of lead the pup into the water as far as they feel comfortable and able to go with me. And then at that point, the, my helper in the water is going to take over and use their sort of appealing stuff, their reinforcers, food, toys to encourage the pup to um, make progress. Let's put it like that. So you don't want to set yourself a goal at first that, you know, the pup must swim to get a piece of food or the pup must swim to get the toy because you're going to be setting the criteria too high there and the pup's going to fail. So think about 
breaking this down, splitting it. Think about identifying small pro- small steps, small progress, could be literal steps, towards your end goal. So, for example, if the pup um, leans forward in the water, you could give the pup a treat immediately. If the pup, um, I don't know, takes one step after hesitating, so they experience the momentary hesitation, they overcome that, they take one more step, they get their treat. Or if you're using a toy, you let them get the toy. Okay, folks, it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor. But I don't have a sponsor, so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now, the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now, the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself, and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's Whistle Pause. Let's get back to the show. So you really want to, you know, reinforce any sort of progress towards your end goal and not have your criteria too high at first. The other thing to say about the use of toys, which I just want to touch on, is that we are not expecting or shaping or or caring at all about what the puppy does with the toy when they get it. So it's purely the pup gets it and then they can do whatever they want to it. They can um, um, take it out of the water, play with it. You know, there's, we're not expecting a retrieve and we're not trying to get a retrieve because we haven't gone through the clicker retrieve process with little puppies at this stage. And it's just, you know, we're trying to do too much too fast because we haven't done a retrieve yet anywhere and we haven't done swimming yet. And we don't want to be trying to get a retrieve and get swimming happening at the same time and a delivery to hand. And whoa, that's just like we're trying to do way too much all at once. So this is purely about swimming and confidence in the water. It's nothing to do with retrieving at this point. So the function of the toy is just to motivate the puppy to want to go in the water. And that's all we care about. We don't care about what the pup does with it after they've got it. However, you don't want to create problems for yourself in the future. So by that, I mean, you don't want to, you know, once you've, your pup's got the toy and they've come out of the water and they're playing with the toy, you have to then get yourself in the situation where you're ready for the next rep. You're ready to the pup to go back in the water again. So how are you going to do that if the pup is has got a toy which they're playing with on the land? So that's why you need multiple toys. So your person, your assistant in the water would have another toy. And you might throw them one, by the way, if, if, you, if they run out of toys. So they're going to have another toy in the water to, to get the pup's attention with and appeal to the pup. So we want the pup to forget about the toy that they've just got out of the water and to now be more interested in the one that your helper has got. 
And whilst when your pup runs off to get that one from your helper, you can pick up the one on the shore when they're not looking so that you're not in this situation where you're taking things off the puppy, which they don't want to give up because that will make retrieving problems for you in the future. So that's basically toys and food. So one little thing to talk about is that the most difficult bit in getting your pup to swim is the confidence and the decision that your puppy has to make to let their feet leave the floor the the you know take their feet off the ground and commit because there's a moment of commitment now the pup has to sort of push off into the water and allow their feet to leave the bottom and that is the moment which is pivotal and um tricky and when you've achieved that and your pup is fluently doing that then you have achieved a huge milestone and the hard work is behind you. And sometimes a difficult bit where you can get really stuck is with dogs, which are happy to wade around in the shallows, happy to walk around with their feet on the floor. They just don't want to let their feet leave the bottom. So that is what you need to be working on. And until you've achieved that, you can't rest in your laurels and you can't think that you are making good progress because that is that is kind of you know what swimming really is isn't there swimming is your feet leave the bottom and you are moving through water without them touching the floor otherwise you're just walking around in some water so so that's what we've got to work on here um and that is what you're kind of got in your head as your goal really although you're rewarding steps towards that as i said so you want to stop your swimming sessions when you've reached a moment of achievement so you don't want to keep going you know if your pup you know, has a little breakthrough and swims for the first time. That is excellent. Pack up, go home. Don't try and see it again and again and again and again because your pup's going to get tired. They may get cold and the whole experience can quickly go from being fun and exciting to being quite miserable. So I think keep it really short, keep it really brief, keep it really successful. And you can always come back. And so it does take multiple trips. So don't expect always to make rapid progress really quickly, although you may do. So the other thing that sometimes people suggest is taking an older dog with you and having an older dog do some retrieves and seeing if that helps in terms of confidence. I've I've read about other people finding this helpful and I've always tried it with our own puppies and I've never really seen it be useful. And instead, it ends up being a pain in the bum because you've got this confident dog that loves swimming um, and they want to retrieve stuff and you're trying to work on the puppy and the other dog just becomes, um, you know, unless you sit them on the shoreline, in which case, why are they there? They just become a pain in the bum, really, and get in the way. And I haven't found that the pups that we've had have benefited very much from seeing an older dog go in there and retrieve. It tends to be that if the pup's got a worry about their feet leaving the bottom, then they have that worry and it doesn't help them to see another dog do that. Where I do find having an older dog really useful is once we've got the pup swimming and we're starting to work on the distance and we're starting to throw things further for the pup to go and get, it really helps if we if we kind of misjudge things and we throw something a bit too far and the puppy lacks confidence to swim that far, it really helps not lose stuff if we have an older dog that we can send to go and get it. So that and that gives me confidence to take a few risks in terms of how far I'm throwing things and not always play it safe because I know that if I misjudge it, and I do throw it a bit too far, then I do have another dog and I haven't lost the item forevermore. So that's why I find an old dog is useful. If I've got a puppy which these these tips and these ideas just really don't help with, then and I'm, you know, I'm really struggling and some time has passed and we're really not achieving the sort of confidence around water that I really wanted to, then 
I've found hydrotherapy to be really, really useful. So I've in the past booked a session of, well, not one session, but multiple sessions of hydrotherapy every week, just in an ongoing way. I think um, it's sometimes taken as much as 12 sessions or so and just going every single week. I want to go to the point where the dog's really excited about getting there. They run into the room and they want to run up the ramp and they really want to get in that pool because that's where all the good stuff is. So when we get to that point, we've started to change feelings about water. I don't know why hydrotherapy really helps. I think it's a combination of the water is warm and pleasant for the dog to be in. There's a person in the water with them. There are lots of interesting new toys because the hydrotherapy pool is constantly cycling in new toys. Um, There's food. So I think it's just a combination of all of this stuff that just makes it a much more pleasant environment. And hopefully then those feelings about swimming and water will be able to carry across to other water um, after that. And I have found that to be the case when I have, when I have used the hydrotherapy pool in that way for, for reluctant swimmers. So that's an idea if you are finding things really difficult. I also find that often the really short-coated breeds, like the single-coated breeds, like Bimaranas, Vigilers, and GSPs, that often they will find it a bit harder to get swimming than the sort of wiry-coated or longer-haired breeds. Probably, again, it's a warmth thing. They're probably just just not so well insulated. They don't have so much hair and experiencing the coldness of the water a bit more. So again, there might be an indication that warm weather and or hydrotherapy pool might be a good a good approach there too. Other things to talk about once. So what do you do once you've got your your puppy or your young dog retrieving? So once they are, well, not even retrieving, but they're just going in the water. For, they're, in, they're motivated to go in the water and get the food or get the toy. What do we do at that point? How do we progress things from there? Well, there's two things that we need to work on next. The next thing we need to work on, we can get our helper out of the water, which is pretty simple at that point. So once we've got the pup, you know, going in the water and confidently eating the food, letting their feet leave the bottom and swimming like one or two swim steps to the um, assistant and eating the food or getting the squeaker and then coming out again, then we can work on I'm going to interrupt this fabulous discussion to bring you today's whistle pause. The whistle pause is where an ad break would usually be, but I don't have an ad break. I just have me and my whistle, my trusty 212, on which I'm going to play you a tune. The sad thing about my whistle at the moment is that it's dying a little bit, so bits of plastic have broken off. So it will only blow if I blow it really loudly, then a note will come out. Otherwise, it's this kind of whispery, hoarse, airy, breathy noise. So I've got another whistle on order, and I'd like to reassure you that the the whistle pause will improve in quality in future episodes. Now, the reason we don't have an ad break here and you have this whistle pause instead is because I don't have a sponsor. I don't want a sponsor because I want to be completely free to recommend the products I want to recommend and I don't want to have to recommend a product that I don't believe in or love in order to get sponsorship. So there are some ways you can support me though because otherwise it is just me making this podcast. So if you like this podcast, there are some simple things and free things that you can do. One is to share it and to tell other people about it. 
and to post it on social media and to promote it whenever you can. The other thing you can do will benefit you as well, I hope. You can check out some of my courses, my online platform, forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon, wherever you live. That is the end of today's whistle pause. Let's get back to the show. distance so get our helper out of the waters they're not there anymore and work on just the pup going in and increasing the distance that we're throwing that retrieve there is a particular um it's not really a toy item that i like to throw which you can buy i mean i guess it's a toy and it is called the rogues lighthouse and you spell that r-o-g-z or if you're in north america r-o-g-z um (laughs) um lighthouse so you can google that and see what it looks like rogues lighthouse and it is it is red and white striped and it floats vertically so it's got it's really weighted in the base and it floats really high off the water about a foot up in the water so the reason why this is good is it's very visible to the dog because it bobs around left and right left and right with the current and it's moving so the dog can see it and it really sits high up in the water so this really helps build confidence on marks as we start to throw them further because the dog can see them at a greater distance it helps with marking on water and it helps with confidence and distance really it also comes with a sort of little throw rope thing so you can throw it nice and far so once we've got a swimming dog the squeaky toys water toys fun toys go away and i'll probably switch to using the rogues lighthouse lighthouses <laughs> um, um, for the next little while to get the marks at a greater distance and then the other thing you want to be working on is delivery so coming out of the water and delivering to hand so i would have by this point have done my clicker retrieve and that will be a completed process. And so I'll have a dog which really understands the idea of proofing the hold against food. So I'll be able to show the dog food and they'll know that when they're showing food, they should continue to hold. So even if an, even if food is put right on their nose, they should resist the temptation to drop and they should hold. So once the dog has that installed, you can use it as they come out of water. So as soon as the dog comes out of water, you put the food on their nose and you can lure them and they will hold until you click and then they will drop or deliver the hand if you've got your hand there um and that way you have control over the release of the retrieve item and if you do that consistently every time the dog comes out of the water the dog comes to expect that this is what happens they come out of the water and they do proof the hold against food if the dog drops before you have done proof the hold against food you can't let them fix this by picking it up and then doing it because that's just not going to work. We don't want to build that in into our chain. We don't want to end up with a dog which comes out of the water, drops the item on the ground, shakes, and then picks it up and does a beautiful delivery to hand because that will see us eliminated from any sort of competition. So we want the dog to come out of the water and deliver and not put it on the ground. And so we can't allow the dog to fix things. If the dog drops it on the ground, that's going to be the end of that rep. And what we're going to do then is pick up the uh, retrieve item without reinforcing the dog pick up the retrieve item from the floor and throw it back into the water maybe not as far as before we don't need to do a full-on you know retrieve at the distance that we just did we just need the dog to get wet and get the item so we want the dog to go back in the water to get the item again 
and then come out. And this time we're going to make sure that we are right there at the water's edge and that we're going to get our click in before the dog has dropped so that we help the dog feel successful. And it's just about, you know, teaching the dog that this is what they expect and this is what happens when they come out of the water. And if you've done this on land properly, you've proofed the hold against against food properly, then the dog should understand when they see this picture of you putting your temptation hand out, they should know this means they need to keep holding. So it's a great way to achieve this. So that is kind of, I think, in a nutshell, how I would introduce swimming and what I would be doing with the swimming. Now, sometimes people want to say, you know, what if it's really difficult and you have one of these dogs who just don't want to let their feet leave the bottom. And, you know, you might have a dog which is like leaning forwards and reaching out to reach the food or the toy, but they really just don't want to commit to their feet leaving the bottom. And you're not seeing any improvement on this. You've done this many times and the same thing is just happening every single time. The dog is sort of reaching forwards. If you deny them the food or the toy, they give up. If you give it to them, well, they've got it, but they haven't had to progress and you're not making any forwards, you know, movement in terms of what you want to achieve. So, if you have a difficult situation like this, I do think this is a situation where we're going to be using that life jacket and that biothane long line. And we're just going to be very gently making the decision for the dog. And this is important, making it be a really quick um, moment before their feet are back again. So what we, the ideal, what we want is the dog's feet leave the ground, they get the toy, they get the food and they get out. And it all takes place in about one second or two seconds. And so we can just gently help them with the lead lead and or the life jacket to have their feet leave the ground just for one or two seconds at which time we allow them to have the feet of the toy and then they've their feet touch the ground again and if you repeat that enough they come to associate feet leaving the ground feet or toy and then getting out again and the kind of moan of hesitation starts to go away hold the line so i just wanted to talk a little bit about i don't want to call it really but what the dog brings to the table is what I want to call it, and and limitations that there might be because of the dog. So I think there is a tendency sometimes in some conversations and some sort of areas to portray the idea that everything can be fixed. And if there's a problem, well, it's just about figuring out the training solution. And I want to say that sometimes that is not the case, that the dog brings a lot to the table in terms of genetically, in terms of personality wise and who they are and the traits that they have. So there is a limit to how much you can influence things. And some of these things are decided by the dog and they just, that just is the case. And that's just how it is. And particularly if you've owned very different dogs, you will begin to see how much what they bring to the table affects the dog and affects what you're working with and influences the outcome and in terms of what it's possible to achieve ultimately in terms of your kind of end goal and how much you can how far you can take things so for example some of these things are going to be swimming that's related to what we're just talking about so how much the dog loves water how easy is it to get the dog swimming some dogs are really easy to get swimming you take your little pup to the sea or lake or whatever you throw your thing in and the dog goes in and gets it and they are just, you know, maybe one second of hesitation, they're right in there and swimming around like they just have done it forever. And other dogs, you can be there for months and months and months and months and you can be really tearing your hair out and thinking, well, this dog's got everything else, but if they just won't swim, what am I going to do? And that's particularly the case um, sometimes with the HBR breeds, the versatile breeds that have to swim 
for their sort of assessment sometimes. And if you can't achieve that, then you're kind of st- stuck, really. It doesn't matter how great your dog is at everything else. So so that's that's one thing to say. I'm having some issues with my GSP at the moment, Ren, with false pointing. So that means that she points when there's actually nothing there. Sometimes this can just be inexperience. So it can just be the dog hasn't yet learned the difference in terms of the scent, the smell, between there's actually game here and game was here very recently, but it's not here anymore. And sometimes it can just be that the dog needs to just be exposed over and over again to many different situations that they start to learn, oh yes, this the way that this scent is functioning means there's actually something here. And the way this scent is functioning means it's not here. It's it's weakening. It's going. And yeah, with Ren, I feel like she's had enough experience. She's had a lot of experience hunting wild birds and she's, you know, it's not that she's not, she's lacking that experience. It's It seems to be some sort of trait that she has. And I think I can relate it to the way she is around the house, for example, even without other dogs. So she's just a very pointery pointer. She wants to just point everything. She's got a lot of this sort of stop and start stuff and stop and start and stop, start, stop. That's just, she's just overflowing with that, almost to the point of having too much of it. And this sort of behavior gets directed towards other dogs as well, which has been a bit obnoxious, especially when she's been a bit younger. But luckily she's starting to grow out of it now because it was really tough. I can't, I can't overestimate, overestimate, overstate um, how tough it was when she was younger um so for example she will just freeze and point one of our other dogs and it doesn't really matter what the other dog does if they're still if they move whatever she'll just point them and then at some moment of her own deciding she will rush at them and kind of flush them i guess and it doesn't really matter what the other dog does at this point if the other dog just stands still i mean ren just jumps on their head and jumps on them um (laughs) and so we had we did have a situation i remember the first time that we took her out to our field with our Labrador because usually I would I would take out the pup separately and do a lot of separate work with with the pup and the older dog, but for this one time we took them both out together, and I just remember Ren pointing our Labrador from like the other side of the field, and it reaching the point where the Labrador decided she just couldn't walk anymore. She couldn't continue. She was just going to freeze in the middle of the field and just stand there. And she looked a bit like Eeyore. She looked like, you know, unhappy Eeyore, the donkey is, and Winnie the Pooh. That's how, that was what Moy looked like with Ren pointing her, because she knew it was coming. She knew that the being ran out and pounced on was coming. And so Ren has been incredibly difficult, is the sort of way to put this, in terms of this pointing instinct and wanting to just point excessively. And so it's no surprise to me this is also what she does in the field. And it'll get to the point where she gets it'll get to the point where, pun, fully intended, not. Um she's she's hunting and she's pointing, and then we walk across the field, sometimes considerable distance to get to her, and there's nothing there. And she does it again. She points, we walk across the field, there's nothing there. She points, walk across the field, there's nothing there. And so like the third or fourth time this happens, you're just like, oh, I'm not going to walk over there because there wasn't been anything in there the last sort of two or three times. And you know what? Then there is something there and you've missed an opportunity to use that as a training opportunity for it because you just didn't want to walk across the field this time. So it's really tough. Anyway, why am I telling this story? What does this have to do with what your dog brings to the table? Well, the fact is that there, when I, I, I mentioned this in a post recently on Instagram, I think, and the sort of general response was, what's the fix for that? What's the way to deal with that? What's the solution? What, how, do you, how do you address that? And really, apart from experience and apart from seeing if 
brain can learn the difference between there's something there and there's not something there in terms of the scent, it's really hard because there's not really a fix. This is one of those things that Dog brings to the table. And I kind of believe that there are these these essential things and you know, if the dog doesn't have these things, then it's really difficult to fix them in terms of training because I can't teach her there's a bird there and there's not a bird there, partly because, especially when it's on wild birds, I don't know if there's a bird there and if there's not a bird there. And if we plant them in launches and we use these to teach her there's a bird there and there's not a bird there, then the information is coming from me. And that's going to inadvertently teach her to look to me to be told when there's a bird there and when there's not a bird there. And that's no use to me in the future because I'm not going to know when we're on wild birds if there's a bird there or not. And she can't learn to look to me for that information. You know, just like if you were teaching a dog to do nose work or scent work, you wouldn't want the dog looking to you, the handler, to be told, yes, that is the target scent and you should indicate. The dog's got to learn that the scent itself is the cue to indicate. And so it's the same thing here. The dog's got to learn that it's the scent itself that tells them there's something there or there's not something there, not the handler. So... There's really not an easy fix for this. And persistent false pointing, at least in UK field trials, is an eliminating fault. So we're just going to have to see how this goes and continue to give her experience and hope that this resolves. But the reason that I'm saying this is that I fully believe that this is also something, it's one of these things that genetically the dog brings. It's part of the personality. It's part of, part of the makeup of stuff that they just bring to the table. Another thing which is similar is run or range. If you've got a dog which just won't get out, just doesn't want to go far enough, just isn't committing to hunting and to ranging far enough, then that is also one of these kind of, um, I believe, one of these kind of things that the dog brings to the table in its most basic crude form. Yes, you can help. With a lot of these things, you can influence things one way or the other. You can help the dog to improve, but you can't have a radically different dog in that um, on that subject or on on that thing, like it's very difficult to to change something to that degree. So it's also about, for example, love of retrieving. Like there are some dogs which just love retrieving, and they would arguably do it enthusiastically, even if there were no reinforcer at the end of it. Even if you didn't give them a treat for bringing the thing back, they just love going out and getting something. They just love that, and they find that reinforcing inherently reinforcing in and for itself. That that sort of trait. It's it's always impossible to to create that degree of love of retrieving if your dog doesn't have it. It's almost something they just have to have. Yes, you can do the click of retrieve. Yes, you can teach them to bring something back. And yes, that was going to make your retrieve function a lot better. But it's not going to be the same. You're not going to reach the same... Um, the same degree of love of retrieving as you would do if you had a dog which innately, inherently loved it, if that makes sense as well. Hopefully you're still going to reach a functional retrieve that's going to serve all the purposes that you need it to serve, but it's not going to be in and for itself innately reinforcing and you're still going to probably always have to provide that external reinforcer afterwards um, whenever you can, especially to keep the, the delivery and the return to you strong. And then things like arousal, and just how keyed up the dog gets in a working environment. That is another thing that's really difficult to fix. I mean, a lot of people struggle with things like dogs making noise, dogs being just really unsteady, dogs just being really ramped up. I don't know how else to describe it. They're just, um, they're just, uh, I don't know. It's like they've had like 20 Red Bulls or something. They're like really, really amped up. And it's really difficult to influence that as well. That's another thing the dog just sort of genetically brings to the table. And yes, again, we can do stuff like 
find it and we can do things like sprinkling treats on the floor and we can teach the dog to take a breath and we can remove the dog from the situation to a distance where they're more comfortable with and we can progress more slowly and we can do all of this but but it's always going to be there it's always going to be something that you're aware of in the dog and that to some degree or other you're managing or um you're never going to reach the incredibly motivated driven fast stylish dog which is also calm when they're waiting that's going to be a really hard thing if you've got a dog with that degree of arousal to to reach because again it's one of these things the dog brings to the table so i guess what i'm trying to say with all of these different examples is kind of paint a picture of how important it is to consider what the dog brings to the table and also to just be aware there are limitations there are limitations to what you can achieve which to some degree are laid out by the individual dog that you have and if you maybe haven't had many dogs, you've just got the dog you've got at the moment, that's your own experience, or maybe you just had one breed of dog and they tend to just be all very similar, of a very similar type, then you may not be aware of the the, the incredible range of all this stuff which dogs can bring. And so you may not you may not quite get this, quite get not just the bits that your particular dog doesn't bring to the table, but what your dog does bring to the table as well, because you may be taking it for granted and you may not be aware of it. And I see that often with i mean it's in things like for example um often you'll get retriever trainers who assume that all dogs love retrieving or that will think that you can use a retriever as a reinforcer because they've only trained retrievers and all the retrievers they've trained have experienced a retrieve as reinforcing and so if you if you go to them with a hpr which doesn't naturally but this is not saying that all HPRs don't value retrieving because many of them are also very keen, enthusiastic retrievers, but you do get some which don't. If you go to them with this type of HPR, then they may be like, oh, that's a bit of a, don't know how to deal with that. And they may even write your dog off just because it's a different type of dog bringing different stuff to the table than the dogs that they have experience of brings to the table, if that makes any sense. I'm not sure that sentence is grammatically correct. But anyway, so that's basically what I wanted to say. And the implications of that are wide ranging. Take it or, um, or leave it. But yeah. So I think I've waffled on for long enough for this episode. And I'll see you all again soon. Hold the line. Hold the line. Hold the line.